This podcast provides audio versions of live webinars. Please see the episode description for a link to the full presentation. Welcome to Listen In, a bite-sized bio podcast series allowing you to access the best of bite-sized bio webinars wherever you are. Our first keynote presentation is titled Design, Develop, Deliver and Detect the four Ds of CRISPR gene editing and is being presented by Dr. Anthony Adamson, manager of the genome editing unit at the University of Manchester. Anthony received his PhD in molecular endocrinology at the University of Manchester in 2006. He then pursued postdoctoral research at the University of Liverpool, developing recombinant bacterial artificial chromosomes for the single cell microscopy of NF-kappa B translocation dynamics and the impact on gene expression in both cell lines and transgenic animal models. Anthony joined the University of Manchester as a senior experimental officer at the Transgenic Unit Core Facility in 2014 and has been manager at the rebranded Genome Editing Unit since 2018. His roles include the integration and application of CRISPR-Cas9 gene editing to assist in the development of custom experimental models, including novel mouse and cultural cell models, as well as teaching and training users in the application of these cutting-edge techniques and delivering expert consultation. We will have a question and answer session after the presentation, so please type any questions that you have into the questions box, which appears at the bottom of your screen, and I'll put them to Anthony at the end. So now over to you, Anthony, for the presentation. Well, hello, everyone. Uh, thank you to the organisers for the invitation to speak here today at this uh, Methods, Techniques and Advice Symposium for CRISPR. My name's Anthony Adamson, and I run a core facility at the University of Manchester called the Genome Editing Unit. So as you might imagine with a name like that, we use and apply CRISPR-Cas9 a lot of the time. We do a lot of training for people uh, and we help users to establish these techniques in their own laboratory as well. And over the years, we've kind of come up with a bit of a, a core principles known as the four Ds, which help us to communicate the best practice to our users. And that's design, develop, deliver and detect. So today I'm going to talk through how we apply these uh, principles in our work. Now... Uh, just a quick background overview of what we're doing here. Essentially, these days, there's all different kinds of experimental models we have access to. Here, we've got mouse, zebrafish, fly, and cells. And we've got a, an, array, uh, an array of techniques that allow us to genetically modify these models. And what kind of modifications can we make? Well, there's things like perturbations, where we may deliberately overexpress a gene of interest, uh, or we can completely remove a gene of interest through a gene knockout process. Or we may, um, say, for example, work with colleagues at the hospital locally who have found a genetic glitch in patients and want us to program that genetic glitch into an experimental model so they can see and explore what that actually does so make you know kinds of point mutations that kind of thing these days as well there's a huge array of different types of uh, reporters and tags and functional tags that are available things like fluorescent proteins luminescent reporters uh, proximity labeling enzymes degron domains all these kind of things and they allow us to measure different biological processes um, we work closer with our co-facility colleagues in, say, mass spec or bioimaging or, or flow cytometry uh, to decide on what these functional tags may be. Well, that's another type of thing we can build into our experimental models. And, of course, we can mix and match. We can put those reporters in there and also make perturbations on the background of the same uh, experimental model. And there's a whole range of different techniques we can do to achieve this type of genetic manipulation. But these days quite simply put, 90% plus of our projects involve CRISPR-Cas9 in some capacity. 
So I'm going to strip it back a little bit now, and uh, apologies to those in the audience who are quite familiar with this already, but essentially explain why, we, why gene editing, why CRISPR-Cas9 uh, is the tool of choice these days. So let's return to that example of, say, a point mutation found in, uh, in human patients. And we want to put uh, that mutated protein into our experimental model so we can do some experiments and, and find out what happens when that cell has that genetic glitch, has that mutated protein. And the classic way of doing this is exogenously. We give the cell an extra bit of DNA. This could be a plasmid or a virus or a bacterial actual chromosome. But essentially, once we've done that, the cell then starts producing the mutant protein and we can do the assays. What does it interact with? What does it bind to? Is it secreted? But there are some problems with this model because ultimately the plasmid can't consider recapitulate normal regulation. You know, genes are generally speaking found, excuse me one second, a laser pointer on, uh, found on chromosomes with all different kinds of regular regions, enhancers and introns, exons, UTRs, that kind of thing. And we can't replicate that in a plasmid. Uh, typically, we get high copy number as well, so we get lots and lots of uh, the protein being produced. And also, um, the cell has also got its own chromosomes, its own, producing its own normal version of the protein. So as a result of that, um, we've got some unintended perturbations. We can still use this technique, we can still build up information and data, but we also have to acknowledge that there may be some errors with the model we're working with. If we think about gene editing, and obviously there's lots of gene editing techniques before CRISPR, so just you know, exemplifying it with these molecular scissors here, but what we can do is actually integrate that mutation into the endogenous gene. And now we've done that, we've maintained normal regulation, we've gotten the normal mouse protein being produced, and we've converted that background protein into the mutant protein we wanted. So we've built a better, better representative model here. I think this is the take-home message for why we use CRISPR-Cas9. It allows us to build far more representative and far more accurate experimental models, and that's why it's revolutionized bioscience and discovery research in the last decade. Uh, it's a contractual obligation as well. Uh, whenever you did give a CRISPR talk to have a slide like this, uh, which explains how it works based on DNA repair pathways, but essentially, just to, as a reminder, what we're doing here is um, programming an RNA molecule known as a guide RNA, coupling it up with Cas9, and then dragging that Cas9 to the uh, program site in the genome where the RNA is directed to. And once there, the Cas9 nuclease generates a double-strand break, and we can exploit the repair pathways that follow. There's lots of repair pathways. I think the, the two main repair pathways that people think of are non-homologous end joining, or NHEJ, and here the DNA is basically glued back together again, and every now and again, this process can make some mistakes, which are um, well, say usually in the form of small indels, so insert small insertions or deletions. We now know there can be bigger changes as well, but essentially a disruption to the local uh, 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 genomic sequences. And this repair process can therefore be a little bit imprecise at times. The other repair process we think about is homology-directed repair, or HDR. Uh, HDR occurs in stage of the cell cycle where the DNA has been replicated. So there's a perfect copy elsewhere in the cell that can be used as a template uh, to precisely repair the broken DNA. And what we can do is hijack this process by supplying our own repair template, which has got homologous sequences flanking the change that we want, and direct that change into the genome. So essentially, NHEJ, uses two components, the guide RNA and the Cas9, and we use that for making gene knockouts. And HDR uh, uses three components, the guide RNA, the Cas9, and the donor repair template, and we use that for making gene knock-ins. It is worthwhile highlighting that NHEJ is far more likely outcome compared to HDR. Uh, but essentially, these are the kind of things we can do, and the kind of changes we can make with these processes 
for NHEJ, we can do things like cut out parts of the genome. You know, we've, we've deleted you know, quarter of a megabase before from the mouse genome using this process. You can make knockouts by making frame shift disruptions within um, uh, genes themselves, or we can actually knock out uh, entire exons to achieve the same kind of gene knockout. For HDR, we can integrate LOXP sites in the genome to make conditional knockouts. We can put in those mutations, those single nucleotide polymorphisms we were discussing before. And we can also knock in tags into endogenous genes as well, so those reported genes and so on and so forth. And despite whatever system you work with, um, I think these four kind of steps, can be, the, the, the process can be broken down to these four kind of steps. We first of all design the editing. Second of all, we, we develop the reagents, the guide RNA, the Cas9, and the, and the donor repair template. Then we deliver those reagents into the model system. And then finally, we detect the editing. And these, you know, these principles can be adapted and applied to all the different experiments models we currently work with. And essentially, um, you know, there's this really nice feature of Nature a couple of years ago that highlights that CRISPR works in most experimental models and different model organisms. And essentially, you can take these, these principles of the 4Ds and build different types of experimental models using this. Uh, our laboratory focuses mainly on mouse and, and, and cells, but the, we, we are involved with other projects with, with other model systems as well. So I'm going to go through how we apply these, um, these principles in mouse and in cells. And essentially, this is a bit of an overview slide for, for mice here. So again, we designed the editing. What does it look like? This is all done in silico. So we can you know, find guide RNAs, we design what the repair template looks like. And then we develop reagents. We build those reagents, the guide RNA, the Cas9, and the repair template. And here, this is all done in vitro. Next, we deliver those reagents, and this is done in vivo. So this is the single cell mouse embryo. And then finally, ex vivo, we can detect the edited pubs. So this is the kind of overview of the process. It's fair to say that when we talk about mouse and also other animal models, there's a fifth D to consider as well, right at the start, which is the discussion. And this is uh, taking into account some of the ethical implications of the changes and, and the process we're trying to uh, achieve here. So uh, this will be largely dependent on where you are in the world and the local laws and license regulations that are in place. But say, for example, we, we have the discussion with the researcher to find out, you know, if we're going to make a mutation, is this going to lead to a severe phenotype in this mouse model? Uh, and are we covered to do that? And if not, what kind of process must we go through to ensure that we are covered to do this so it's really important to add that extra step in when dealing with certain animal models so design let's think about the design process um, I, again NHEJ we can make these knockouts essentially in joint deletions so what are our golden rules for the design well if you're trying to make a gene knockout and this kind of applies in no matter what experimental model you're working with you want to be thinking about designing guides that have got the lowest off-targeting potential possible we want to try and avoid exon one uh, because that can sometimes result in uh, disruptions in exon 1, but not full gene knockout. You end up with N-terminal truncations due to a phenomenon known as translational reinitiation. We, generally speaking, try to target exons with an asymmetric splicing phase because it's more likely to uh, lead to gene knockout. And exons that are common to all ice forms and as upstream as possible. And a really important step is validation. Validate your knockout. We'll come back to that in a second or two. When we work with mice, we rather uh, we prefer to delete entire exons rather than create indels within exons, and that is uh, because it aids in our downstream genotyping. And again, we'll talk about it later on. In terms of making precise changes, HDR-based knockins. Uh, again, we can make conditional knockins and SNPs, 
and uh, uh, knocking tags. Here, your guide RNA choice may be a little bit more constrained. Locality is really, really important. You have to be cutting close to the change you want to make in order for it to work. And that may mean we tolerate guides that perhaps have a few more uh, off-targets, and we may have to screen for those off-targets. Uh, one big advantage of working with mice is if we did create an off-target uh, indel or, or, or change, then we can segregate that change away uh, from the desired change through breeding, and we can factor that into our downstream breeding processes and genotyping of the, of, of the uh, following colonies. And in terms of the uh, design and um, the DNA donor, if we're making something like a SNP, we uh, use a single-stranded uh, oligonucleotide uh, bought from a company. If we're making bigger changes, we typically uh, use double-stranded DNA or more likely long single-stranded DNA to make these changes. How do we design those guide RNAs? This talk today is not going to uh, go through uh, the nitty-gritty of designing guide RNAs. There's a wealth of resources out there um, uh, if you're interested in learning more about this. But in terms of the online web tools that we use, we typically use any one of these three web tools. Um, find your own favorite is what I'd say. But essentially, they are really user-friendly these days. So that you can find guide RNAs that, have, that predict off-targeting and have the lowest off-target potential. Some of these web tools also predict on-target activity as well, and you can factor that into your designs if you want to, too. So what about developing those reagents? Well, this has changed over the years, and this is something I like to highlight about um, how it's really important to stay on top of what's new and available and commercially available to you as well. So back in 2015, when we first started making our own CRISPR-modified mice, you know, if we're making a gene knockout, a mutation, or a tag, we were pretty much making everything. I was synthesizing Cas9 uh, messenger RNA, and I was synthesizing the guide RNAs, and that's what we were using for injections. Um, if we were using uh, doing a knock-in, I would also be cloning the double-stranded DNA and making linear DNA from that. Um, we, were lot, we were at this point in time uh, buying in S, uh, commercial SSO, SSODNs for making those point mutations as well. If we fast forward now to 2022, um, these days pretty much everything is commercially uh, bought. We buy Cas9 protein from suppliers. We buy guide RNA from suppliers. This guide RNA is, is better than what you can make in-house as well, you know, thanks to the addition of certain chemical you know, tweaks and tags on there, which make it more efficient. Uh, the same goes for uh, commercial SSODNs. We still buy those, um, but again, they've been tweaked and improved over the years as well to be more uh, effective. The one thing we still make ourselves, or uh, currently still making ourselves, is long single-strand DNA. We, we developed our own protocol for doing this. But the, the vast majority of things we outsource and we buy from a company. But we have to think about the future and what the future may hold. And one recent development is that uh, people are now demonstrating that using adeno-associated virus as your donor molecule is uh, far more efficient than long single-strand DNA. And we're currently trialing this. I admit we're a little bit behind the curve on this, but we're currently trialing this. And in order to do this, we're buying it from a commercial supplier. So it may be that in the future, in terms of developing the reagents, everything, we design everything, and then just simply go and order it from a company. So delivery. Now, delivery into mice is, is tried and tested. You know, people do microinjection of mouse embryos since about 1975. Uh, so what we can do is load up our injection needle with the guide RNA, the Cas9 protein, with or without repair template if necessary. And we, we have this uh, embryo here held by the holding needle, and the needle goes straight into the pronucleus uh, pro and injects the guide RNA and the Cas9 where it needs to be. And it's a really super efficient process. So we've got this one cell embryo stage now, and any genetic change we make at this one cell, as it divides and differentiates into all the different cells and tissues, 
that modification is going to be pretty much throughout the entire mouse. So you get really, really low levels of mosaicism and really high rates of germline transmission uh, from CRISPR in the mouse. We have also got the option of electroporation these days. Um, we typically use this um, for when we're making uh, gene knockouts or using SSODNs. It's not as good for uh, electroporating or delivering larger donors in there, although I know there is some movement in the field in this. Um, but whereas microinjection requires a lot of technical skills and uh, well-trained staff and takes a few hours, electroporation doesn't take anywhere near as long. You can probably complete it in a third or a quarter of the time uh, for the same number of embryos. And like I say, less specialist training is required. And this is a really popular technique in the community now as well. It will be remiss of me to not mention some of the other methods out there. This is not a technique we're currently using here, known as a, a genome editing via oviductal nucleic acid delivery, or GONAD, a fantastic acronym, I'm sure you'll agree with me. Uh, and this involves the direct electroporation of the oviduct after you inject it with the CRISPR reagents. And this has uh, been you know, successfully applied by lots of different groups. I think one of the really nice things, a very recent paper here uh, in this reference, where this was successfully applied on outbred mouse strains as well. So typically the methods we're using for electroporation and microinjection, we're kind of stuck with the standard black six or a couple of the different strains of mice. Whereas this method appears to be more amenable to using different strains of mice, which could be a big advantage uh, depending on what your model is uh, you're trying to create. We hope you're enjoying this episode of Listen In from Bite Size Bio. To access the visuals of this webinar, please see the episode description for a link to the full presentation. And then finally, detect detection, the fourth D in this process. Now this loops back to that design aspect I was talking about, how we like to delete an exon when we're making gene knockouts. And the reason why, it makes our genotyping loads easier. So if we rather make an indel within the exon, design guide RNAs that flank the exon and just chop the entire thing out, then we get a big size change. So in this example here, this was the, one of the first mice we ever made, and hence the horrendous gel. <laughs> we don't really make many gene knockouts these days. People tend to like um, gene knock-ins uh, locally in Manchester. But this is the kind of process we would use where we delete the entire exon um, and that then gives a very clear size difference. So we see here in PUP number four, it should be a thousand base pairs if wild type, but 500 base pairs if it's been deleted. And that's a really clear difference we can pick up on the gel. You also have to remember, we're going to give this mouse colony over to the user group once we finish making it. And they need to genotype every single generation. So if we make a, a two base pair change and indel to make that knockout, that's going to be a real pain for them to have to keep doing the PCR and sequencing or, you know, that kind of thing uh, going forward. Whereas here, it's very simple PCR. We a big size difference that will easily allow you to identify your het mice, your hom mice and your wild type mice as well. I'm going to have a quick word on validating the loss of protein because it's a really, really important thing. And this applies not just to mice, but obviously any model system. Make sure that the change you make, the CRISPR knockout you've designed, does actually generally lead to the loss of the protein. There's been a couple of prominent papers in the last few years that show that even in situations where you assume the gene's been knocked out, there's still some kind of um, protein being produced as the cells may adapt to the change. And this is a, an image I stole from Twitter, and I, I apologize to the person who tweeted it. I don't know who it was, so I can't reference you. Um, but essentially, this is a really analogous to this kind of process here. Some changes have been made to this restaurant sign here, and some of the bulbs have gone. Some of the bulbs have been lost. But essentially, some bulbs are still there, and it retains enough information to, to be informative, to give you what you need, and, uh, and let you know that, that this, this is a restaurant. 
And this is analogous to what's happening in the cells. The cells may have lost parts of the protein, maybe domains the protein, uh, maybe it's lower expression level, but there's still enough protein that remains to uh, be functional. So therefore, what you have got there is you haven't got a knockout. So it's really important to validate the protein has been lost um, using uh, techniques like Western blots, um, perhaps even mass spec, going to those lengths as well, functional assays. You know, make sure that your protein has been lost when you've made your CRISPR knockout models. So what if we make a point mutation then? How do we detect this? Because here we can't make a size difference. We can't make a size change because essentially we're gonna have the same size uh, um, amplicon. What we like to do is factor this into the design. So as well as making the point mutation um, um, to mimic the disease or, or whatever model we're trying to generate, so we, we integrate that into our repair template, we also like to include a couple of synonymous shield mutations as we call them. These have got two functions actually. One function is that the shield mutations um, may prevent recutting or retargeting of the region once we made our change. You know, last thing we want is for the guide RNA to go into the gene, bind the gene, um, break it, the repair summit, direct the change in there, and then afterwards the guide RNA, which is still roughly similar to the sequence of change, is able to go back in there, bind again, and cut and generate NHEJ. And we've seen that in the past, it does happen. So by changing the PAM sequences as well, and deliberately doing it so we get the same amino acid coming out, but we lose the NGG motif, it means that we lock in that change from HDR, and the guide RNA is unable to go and rebind that sequence. So with all these changes we're making, one thing we can do is try and deliberately create something that's also going to help our, uh, ourselves with screening. So let's imagine, as well as generating the point mutation, we're creating a brand new, unique restriction enzyme site as part of the HDR process. So now we can amplify over the target site, and then we can digest the amplicons with the enzyme. And if we've got a wild type sequence in there, we don't get any digestion. If we have a heterozygous sequence in there, then the wild type allele doesn't, bind, uh, doesn't uh, digest, but the mutant allele does. If we have homozygotes, then we get total digestion. So it's a really nice way of building a genotyping strategy for the group going forward. They can then genotype their colonies uh, based on this PCR and digest strategy. Uh, it's also worth pointing out in the founder genotyping, we're at the F0 stage. If we had an NHEJ event, then that's not going to, it's very, very unlikely, going to result in the random creation of that restriction enzyme site. So false positives are very unlikely. The other way we can do it in terms of planning a genotyping strategy for going forward is to um, deliberately get rid of a pre-existing uh, restriction site in the, in the genome. And now we just flip around what the genotyping looks like. So a wild type will fully digest, a heterozygote will partially digest again, whereas a homozygote will not digest at all because we've removed that restriction enzyme site. Um, here it's worth our pointing out though, don't rely on this because NHEJ in the founder could also result in the loss of that restriction enzyme site. So you might get some false positives where we're not getting full digestion. And this is why it's really, really critically important to make sure we always sequence our alleles. So once we've identified ones that are likely or potentially positive to the change we want through that HDR process, we'll always make sure we do some sequencing, usually by blunt cloning and then sequencing a number of, uh, of colonies. Or um, these days, a lot of companies will offer this as a service by a next-gen sequencing as well. And then finally, the other type of change to discuss in terms of uh, design a, de a detection method is 
if you say put on a gene tag, which is quite a large change actually. So from a design perspective, it's not too difficult to come with gene tag assays. So this is an example of a mouse we made where we integrated the halo tag at the end terminus of this gene here, um, also known as NR1D1, also known as reverb alpha. When we came to the genotyping, it's quite simple. We designed primers that flank outside the homology arm and primers that are within the tag itself. And we can do a series of different PCR reactions to find out, have we specifically integrated the halo tag into the desired genomic location? Um, so if we use these two primers in combination that flank across, don't forget they can amplify on a wild type allele as well. And what we see here, we actually got a lot of NHEJ. So we've got a lot of indels being formed as evidenced by these multiple bands in the gel. And we can also see it's a little bit harder to pick up due to PCI bias, but we have got bigger bands at roughly the right size that we're kind of expecting. And then we can do those specific PCRs where we um, go from outside the homology arm into the halo tag, and then from inside the halo tag on the other side to outside the halo tag, and we can get those products there as well. And if you look at these two gels, we've done the five prime PCR and the three prime PCR. What you'll notice, we've got a couple of bands here that um, in the three prime, but not in the five prime. And we see this quite a lot. Um, we call them illegitimate repair events. We don't fully understand it, but we basically get partial integration. Um, it would be really nice to take these forward and understand why we have partial integration. Uh, but in, in all honesty, we're operating a service and the user wants the mouse where they want. We don't have the capacity resource to do that. So we then focus on the ones that are positive in all the PCR reactions that we do. So that's PUPS 3, 5 and 8 from this particular example. And then sequence, make sure you sequence. And that's really important because if you look at these examples here, we've done a sequence, we've aligned it um, to what it should look like. And that's where we're looking at these filled red bars. And look at put number three. We've got a bit of a gap. And when we looked into it, we'd actually lost six bases from the halo tag itself. Again, we don't quite understand why we lost those six bases, what happened in that repair process. Uh, but it's not the mouse model we wanted it to. So we would discard that one as well and not take it forward. Uh, and we focus on puts five and eight, and we bred those forward, and they work exactly as planned. But it's worth our pointing out, you know, multiple genotype and assays are required to detect those potential positive founders. Watch out for those illegitimate repairs, which are possible. One thing we haven't been doing, but I, I know other people in the field are doing, is using things like long read sequencing, uh, which can detect these, uh, these um, illegitimate repair events. They can also detect other events as well, such as duplication and, and inversions, which can happen too. Um, so it is worthwhile um, using an array of genotyping techniques to make sure you've got what you want. Uh, and again, you know, that validation comes in as well. When you hand the mouse over to the group, make sure they're aware, uh, make sure they're looking for um, the change they want from a protein perspective, from a functional perspective, as soon as possible. So that brings us up to date where mouse work is concerned. And, you know, that was historically what we started doing. And we were getting loads of people coming to us and say, look, you do CRISPR all the time and, you know, we don't work in mouse. We work in different models. Can you help us establish CRISPR in, in, in our cell lines, in our iPSCs and this kind of thing? And clearly there was enough of a demand here for me to be motivated back in 2009 or so to say, look, we can do CRISPR in mice. Let's adapt the facility and add a new service arm where we start to do CRISPR in cultured cells. Obviously a bit of a rocky start to this because within six months of us starting this, the pandemic, uh, global pandemic hit. So it kind of all uh, took a backseat as we we're trying to ramp up activity. But this has become a really popular arm of the facility since and we're completing more and more projects all the time. And we can take those same kind of principles and apply them in cells, but adapt them and tweak them. We've already discussed the design aspect. If we're making a knockout in a mouse, we want that size difference. Whereas if we're doing it in cells in a dish, 
we're happy in Dells. That works absolutely fine. It means we only need one guide RNA. Um, and, you know, you're locking in a change that the group then going to just keep culturing the cells. They're not going to genotype the cells every pass that. So it's not like we need to have a, a downstream genotyping assay at play for them. So indels and other genes is absolutely fine. In terms of developing the reagents, the mouse work, pretty try and test the reagents. We buy things, most things in commercially, and that'll you know continue to, um, to happen for the foreseeable future. Whereas with cells, you know, it's going to completely depend on the cell I'm being used and the, and the edit we're trying to make and how we approach the development of those reagents. In terms of delivery, as I said, since 1965, people have been in, um, injecting mouse embryos, tried and tested methods. Whereas for any different um, cell, any, any given cell line, you may want to think about optimizing that delivery. You may want to think about changing the way that the reagents get into the cells because different cells have got different preferences. And then finally, detection. With mice, we get a pup born, or several pups born, and we can take ear punches from those pups, and we can isolate genome DNA, and then we can genotype those ear punches and identify which pups have got the change we want. Cells, generally speaking, will exist in a mixed pool in the dish, and there may be a whole range of different genotypes in there, wild-type cells, cells with partial knockout, cells with full knockout. So we may want to think about putting in some kind of enrichment conditions or selection marks in there uh, to enhance our numbers, basically, you know, look for those rare outcomes. And that goes back, you know, to the design aspects, you know, do we design our repair template um, if, we, if we're using one in such a way so that we can maximize um, our detection efficiency? Uh, obviously that then affects, you know, the development of those reagents, how we clone those repair templates. Another thing to mention is where did, where detection concerned with mice in our founders, we're happy if we change one allele and we get heterozygous because ultimately we're going to breed it forward and establish a colony. And then we can set up our breeding to make biallelic homozygous mice if we want to do that. Whereas if we identify a cloner population of cells where only one allele has been changed and we want it to, we can't interbreed cells in a dish. That's not the way it works. So we may have to factor this into our screen, the fact that maybe. Uh, um, two alleles that we need to change in the cell line. Very often we have cell lines that have abnormal carrier types as well. So there may be multiple alleles that you have to target. So again, this all feeds into that detection process. Not only are we looking at things at the genetic sense, but also validating the protein level as well. Um, so again, you know, these four, four Ds, these principles, they apply to mice, they apply to cells. We just tweak and adapt them based on the model system. So in terms of those cell lines, you know, um, there's those four Ds again. If someone comes to us with a cell line we know that we've worked before, then we can run through that usual process. If it's a cell line we don't know that we're not familiar with, we do a preliminary service where we do a, a delivery optimization. And this is just a recent example where, you know, we can test lots, lots of different uh, methods um, in parallel to deliver the same guide RNA, um, which um, is our control guide RNA, via nuclear infection or live infection, lots of different methods. And then we can use these kind of online tools like Tide or ICE or Decoder to quantify the editing efficiency. And when we do that, we can compare the different conditions. And you can see you know, really quickly here that clearly we could use in this particular cell line, RI Max with forward transfection or nuclear infection. And we're getting around about 90% indel formation. So really, really high rates of indels. Quite often what we'll do then is we'll draft this up as a protocol and we'll give it to the group and the group can then use it going forward for any cell lines that you know, they want to make any further knockouts. Um, or we can then um, proceed with the knockouts for them uh, to the next stage of the process, which is you know, design and develop and deliver the reagents. And again, it's these kind of changes we're looking at making in cells. 
just reiterate those design aspects, NHEJ, you know, the, all those same kind of guide RNA choices, um, they, they remain the same. As I've already highlighted, we like to do indels uh, in exons when we're making gene knockouts in cells. We would also, typically speaking, design three per gene and screen them. I'll, this will, uh, I'll, I'll go into more detail on that in a few minutes' time. But we've got a lot of choice, essentially. We're not, we're not going to struggle to find guide RNAs, generally speaking. Uh, again, HDR-based knocking, uh, largely the same kind of principles, has been more local, more, you know, uh, design is more constrained. Um, we design the donor DNA as required, and we may include some enrichment markers in there. And we'll talk about that in a second or two. So in terms of developing those reagents ready for delivery, um, what do we, you know, we've got a table here of options, but cut to the chase, this is what we generally speaking use. In fact, I don't think we've strayed from this method in any cell line. Um, we've done around about 30 to 40 different cell lines now, but we use this ribonucleoprotein method. And this basically means we buy in the Cas9, we buy in the guide RNA from a company again. So there's no cloning required, so it's really streamlined for us. Um, generally speaking, with this RMP complexes, we can get a really high transfection efficiency. It's still optimized, but we can usually get you know um, 80 to 90% indole formation. Um, the literature tends to suggest that using this method, because this protein complex turns over pretty rapidly, um, it does its job on the target site and then disappears. It suggests that it has lower off-targeting potential as well. And we've got a, an, a range of different um, delivery methods available to us, you know, chemical-based tra transfection, physically uh, uh, through nuclear infection, that kind of thing. Um, so yeah, RMP is, is the way to go. That's what we'd use in most projects. In terms of the repair template, generally speaking, we are still working with plasmids. Um, that does cause, cause some problems in some cell types. Some cells do not like being transfected with plasmids uh, and you get really, really low efficiency. Um, generally speaking, what we like to do is integrate those removable selection markers for editing enrichment. Uh, that's one of the big advantages of plasmids we put that in there. As I say, constraints, transfection efficiency can be a bit problematic. I've included long single-stranded DNA here. We have used this in cells and we have used it successfully. Um, it's great, you know, we love it in mouse. It's great in mouse. It's probably not as tractable for cells because we need a far greater yield of material. And our protocol gives us quite a lot of, of, of DNA, uh, but generally speaking, it's not enough to do multiple uh, uh, rounds of transfections. So we don't tend to use long single-stranded DNA in cells, although I will say, you know, it does work and works pretty effectively at times. On occasion, we have used AAV as a donor, where we flank the change we want to make um, with homology arms and then package it to an AAV. And we don't do this ourselves. Um, we outsource the packaging. Um, some of you may have access to packaging um, within your own institutes, uh, which makes it cheaper for you. But for us, that makes it a bit more expensive. Uh, you also consider different cells uh, will prefer different types of serotype of AAV. So there may be some preliminary work you have to do there as well. So a bit more extra work and it can be expensive. But the reality is that AAV is a far more efficient donor than either of these two options here. So it does enhance uh, CRISPR efficiency. And in those non-transfectable cells with plasmids, and this is the, the occasion we have used it, it does still infect. You know, so we can get a reasonable level of infection in those cell types and achieve the uh, precise changes you want to make in the genome using this uh, as a donor modality. And then finally, we come to the detection stage of those cells again. So we think about gene knockouts and knock-ins. Well, as I said, we design multiple guide RNAs because 
as much as there are on-target predictions sometimes, they don't necessarily bear out in every single sell time. You know, they're, they're useful as a guide, but I wouldn't you know, uh, trust them too much. Generally speaking, we prefer to design the guide RNAs um, to, uh, against the exons that we want to target for maximum knockout potential, and then we'll screen two or three of them. So you can see here, we just take a six-wall plate, guide one, guide two, guide three, RMP transfection using the optimized protocol, usually have a negative and positive control as well, just to make sure everything's okay. And then once we've done the transfection, we can leave them a couple of days, we can split the population of cells and retain some of the incubator ready for uh, uh, further growth of the culture. And the other cells we can harvest genomic DNA and assay via tied ISO decoder again to see which guide RNA was the most efficient. And you can see in this example here, all three guide RNAs worked, all of them cut. Guide RNA2 was giving us 80 odd percent indel efficiency, which is just far higher. And it means the following stage has become far simpler and far more streamlined for us. At this point, we can either hand the cells over to the group um, and say, oh, look, we've got a knockdown cell population for you. Around about 80% of the cells have, have uh, lost the gene of interest. And they can go ahead and do their validation experiments. And then if they want to use it as a knockdown population, they can do um, much quicker and easier. Alternatively, we can derive monoclonal cells. Um, this is going to depend on the cell line again. So you may want to think about optimizing how we make clones from a particular cell. Uh, it could be sewer dilution. It could be using uh, uh, flow sorting, that kind of thing. And then, again, you're going to do genotyping of those clones. And you want to do it as, as early as possible as well to make sure you've got what you want. Uh, you, and you also may want to do um, things like Western blots or protein assays as soon as possible. Because the last thing you want is to have multiple potential clones growing in your incubator and having to culture them all. Let's, you know, throw away the ones that you don't want, you know, and keep the ones that have got the desired change and the desired genotype and phenotype. And then, like I said, we can expand those to a cell population and hand those over to the group as well. When we think about knock-ins, uh, again, there's, there's no one-size-fits-all with knock-ins. It's going to completely depend on the cells, on the gene, and the change you're trying to make, and the, de and, and the desired application downstream. You can just go through blind screening to make monoclonality you want, so you transfer the guide, the repair template, and then I say clones. We wouldn't recommend that. We know HDR doesn't occur as often as, as NHEJ, so um, you're going to be doing an awful lot more clonal uh, derivation. If you have an advantage that is given to you by the change you're trying to make, so let's imagine you're tagging a gene with a fluorescent protein, and that gene is always turned on, so that gene will start making the cells to be green or red, whatever color it is, then of course you can take advantage of that. You can sort the cells that have, uh, that have got that fluorescent protein being expressed. And you can sort them into single cells and then expand those populations, do that genotyping, do that phenotyping, make sure it's the change you want to make. But that um, um, we can exploit the desired change as our enrichment marker. If we can't do that, say, you know, we're not tagging with a fluorescent protein, we're putting something else in there that's not going to give us an enrichment criteria, then one, one thing we like to do is put in a removable selection marker, usually an antibody resistance gene. And that's flanked by these LOXP sites here as well. So that allows us then to transfer the cells and select the cells that have got this antibody resistance. And then we'll make sure we do the genotyping, make sure it's in the right place in the genome. We can then go to monoclonal cells, expand those populations, and again, confirm that the clones have got the change in the right place in the genome. And we have the optional step now, because we have the resistance gene flanked by these um, LOXP sites, we can supply Cree into the cells, Cree recombinase, and remove it. And get it as close to back to being as normal um, uh, genomic sequence as possible, with the caveat we have 
left behind a locked P site, but generally speaking, we design it so that that's going to be tolerated by the gene and not have a, um, a, an impact on the, on the gene expression. So that's the kind of general gist of how we make our cells. And it's all a numbers game. I say this to everyone on every single project. Don't make life difficult for yourself. If you don't screen guide RNAs and, and you end up with a guide RNA that's got low activity, even if you get the best delivery method in the world, you know, uh, that gets the RNP complex at high concentrations into every single cell, you're going to end up doing lots of cell culture as you try and derive your monoclonals. Similarly, you might have a really, really good guide RNA, but your transfection method is rubbish and you get poor delivery efficiency. And again, you're going to end up doing lots and lots of cell culture. So just factoring this into your thinking. So if you have a high guide RNA uh, activity for gene knockout and a really good delivery efficiency, then you're going to streamline those downstream bottlenecks. Same goes for making knock-ins, integrate those enrichment markers. That's then going to, and combine that with a high delivery efficiency, you're going to streamline those down, downstream steps. So be clever about your design, optimize your delivery, and therefore you're going to reduce that bottleneck when it comes to detection of your monoclonal cell lines at the end of the process. So just to end now in the next couple of minutes, um, more evolution of the core facility, we can do CRISPR in mice, we can do CRISPR in cells. So, so in the last year or so, we started working on our local fly facility and say, let's make CRISPR modified flies. And again, those four Ds, those principles, they work again. With the design, obviously, with tails to the project, as it always is. In terms of developing those reagents, I've already highlighted, we're using commercially sourced reagents for the most part in mice. And for the most part in, in cells, we may be making donor molecules ourselves in both these instances. Where fly is concerned, you know, a bit of a learning curve here, but we actually use a fly line that's got Cas9 that's encoded to be expressed within in the germline. So it's always there. So we don't need to think about supplying Cas9 as a protein or as mRNA or as a plasmid. The guide RNAs, we typically clone those into a plasma as well. That's the optimal way of making uh, uh, CRISPR flies. And where the donor's concerned, you know, we talked about those enrichment markers. We do the same thing again. We have an enrichment marker. Although in this case, it's not something like an antibody resistance. It's perhaps something that changes the eye color of the, of the fly. So we can rapidly detect which flies have got the change we want. In terms of delivery, as I said, trying and test techniques for mouse optimizing different cell lines and where flies are concerned this is tried and tested as well people have been doing embryo mic injection of flies for decades and finally in terms of detection pcr and sequencing for the mice for the cells we're doing that enrichment first quite often so that could be you know screening the guide rnas or it could be the resistant the antibody resistance genes put in there followed by pcr and sequencing and again, with the flies, as I say, we have that enrichment population where we look for things like the eye color. This is, generally speaking, these markers are also removable. So once we've got um, uh, uh, the flies with the correct eye color, we do the PCR and sequencing, uh, and we cross them to a balanced line and establish that colony. So again, those principles apply no matter what model system you're working with. So I think I've gone on for long enough now. Um, I'm going to just have a couple of conclusions. So CRISPR allows us to build more representative and accurate experimental models. And these principles of these four Ds, they can really help you to uh, plan your gene editing experiments and maximize efficiency and reduce the labor involved as well. And they can be tailored to different experimental models and the different types of edits you're trying to achieve. And finally, just to acknowledge my team here. So these are, are all the guys that work within the genome medicine unit here at the University of Manchester. And uh, as I say, more recently, we started collaboration with our local fire facility led by Sanjay Patel. 
So that's uh, the end of my talk. Uh, thanks for listening, and I'm happy to take any questions you may have. Thanks, Anthony, for that excellent presentation. Uh, we have a few questions from the audience. If anyone else has a question, please feel free to post it in the questions box that appears at the bottom of your screen. So the first question to you, Anthony, is have you worked with any particularly challenging cell lines? Uh, yes, uh, but usually there's a way of getting it to work. It just requires more optimization. So things like THP1s, we had a bit of a nightmare with those. Uh, in the end, we had a nuclear fetching strategy where we had to really increase the concentration of the guide RNA in the Cas9. But ultimately, uh, this you know we got this to work successfully. Um, to date, we haven't had any failures. There have definitely been some cell lines where we've had to uh, throw a bit more effort into the optimization, but most signs work. One thing we haven't started working with yet that is on the agenda is primary cells. Uh, and we understand already that these are going to be more challenging, but there are definitely protocols out there for lots of different primary cells. And I suspect that it's just a case of optimizing. Okay, thank you. Uh, and the question is from Adam Lynch. How can you check if your CRISPR-Cas9 has a on both alleles? Um, so you can do a number of different assays here. I mean, one thing to bear in mind as I highlighted in the talk, uh, some cell lines have got abnormal carrier type. So when you say both alleles, it may not be just two alleles, there may be multiple alleles in there. You can do things like uh, PCR assays um, to, to check for the loss of a, of a small size of products and you're getting a big size um, um, only coming through. And that might determine between HETs and HOMs uh, using PCR. You can do things like copy number assays using droplet digital PCR to make sure you've got the correct copy number of the tag you're trying to put in there. Um, you can do, um, you know, there's, there's lots of techniques um, in terms of those enrichment markers we talked about. We you could put two different donor templates in and the first donor template may have a pure myosin resistance gene on there and the second donor may have a blastidin resistance gene on there and you co-select in the antibiotics and that will enrich for cells that had both alleles modified. So there are a number of different strategies. Uh, you could also do sequential um, editing. So you might make a clone of cells where one allele is tagged and then on that background, you can go back in again and try and tag the, the, the second allele uh, using a secondary process. So there's, there's lots of routes to achieve bioallelic editing. Thanks for that answer. Um, the next question we've got is from Pasindu. Are there any other methods of inserting gRNA in Cas9 rather than using microinjection? Uh, yeah, so obviously microinjection is what the field loves and is you know, tried and tested. Um, but we've been using electroporation quite a bit, uh, and that works really, really well for Cas9 and for the guide RNAs. Um, in terms of the, those repair templates, SSODNs, small repair templates, they will electroporate really nicely into mouse embryos as well. Bigger repair templates, especially double-stranded DNA, they're not as successful for electroporation. Um, but it's definitely a very valid technique. And as I highlighted, you don't need the same kind of level of specialist training to operate an electroporator that you do a microinjection rig. Okay. Thank you very much. Um, our next question is from Thomas and is about um, the design step. So in the design, uh, in the step for design consideration, uh, why do they have to do exon deletion? It's just simply for ease of genotyping. It just makes your life so much easier, especially when you've had, you know, quite often we make the mice and then we give it to the group. And last thing we want is the group to be emailing us or phoning us every single time they've bred a new generation say, right, we've got these mice. How do we genotype them? How do we know which ones are the hets, the homozygotes and the wild types? So we, we like to factor in a deletion where you can easily build 
a PCR-based assay that the group can easily apply going forward to genotype their colonies. Indels are absolutely fine. You can knock out the gene using indels in mouse. That, that, that will still work. But from a practical perspective, making, a, a gene, making an exon deletion does help matters downstream. Okay, that's great. Thank you. Um, our next question is from uh, Faiza. Um, I have tried to knock out a gene using 3G RNA targeting different exons of the protein. I've selected nine clones and have performed Western blot for the absence of protein. Full-length protein is totally gone, but unfortunately, some small bands that see chopped up band full-length protein appear. Um, the question is, uh, what should someone do in this situation? Are these nine clones indeed knockout clones? They don't sound like knockout clones to me. They sound to me like your gene has got multiple isoforms and maybe some other some of those isoforms are still being expressed. Maybe those other isoforms have been overexpressed as a result of you knocking out the gene. So some genes are essential. Evolution has given us these genes. The cells don't want to lose them. They've got functions. So the cells are fighting against that CRISPR knockout. One thing you could do in this circumstance, and we've done this as well, is to do a gene deletion where you can use a couple of guide RNAs that are at either ends of the gene and just try and cleave out the entire gene uh, because then you remove all isoforms and the gene is going to really struggle uh, to be reactivated in that circumstance. The caveat there is you are removing other parts of the genome. So think carefully, are there any... Uh, long non-coin RNAs or microRNAs in that same region because then you're making additional perturbations to um, the loss of your gene of interest. So, you know, you have to look at it on a case-by-case -case basis. But certainly if you have got multiple isoforms, make sure your guide RNAs are tag trying to target every single one of those isoforms. Okay, that's a great answer. Thank you very much. Um, our next one uh, is from Galaxy A11. Um, is the NGS a good approach to validate a knockout? Uh, yes, it's really good, and it's uh, it's just a bit more tricky and, and high throughput. Essentially, if you if you've got a population of cells and you want to know uh, how frequently have you got indels in there, then NGS NGS is going to give you really high read depth and really accurate information. What I would say is some of the online web tools that we use to quantify our editing, things like Decoder, Ice, um, and Tide that were highlighted in the talk, they do a pretty good estimation as well of the level of gene knockout. And Decoder uh, and Ice will also try and give you an idea, flavor what the alleles are, what kind of change has been made. So NGS is absolutely uh, fine to validate. If you have access, access that technology, then go for it. Uh, but as I say, there are cheaper alternatives. Okay, thank you. Um, for our next question is from Anuba. I'm working on knocking out a mitochondrial protein, but the cell viability seems to be a problem. What should be my plan of action? Uh, so obviously some cells are essential. As I said, you can't knock them out. If you knock out a gene, it might kill the cells. So it sounds like Anuba's got a problem with that kind of gene there. Um, it may be, you might have to look at other strategies, perhaps um, um, rather than CRISPR, you might want to looking at things like Degron domains and proteasomal depletion that you can control. You might want to think about uh, um, making it conditional or so it's inducible so you can in an, in an acute time frame, lose the gene and do your experiments. Uh, but trying to establish a culture where that gene is permanently knocked out is probably not going to happen. Okay, thank you. Um, for our next uh, question from uh, Simia, I'm trying to knock out a particular gene in primary mesenchymal cells through viral transduction, but the transfection efficiency was very low, approximately about 20%. We 
PL CRISPR EFS GFP 57818. Uh, what method can I use to improve the efficiency? Okay, um, so if you're using lentivirus transduction, generally speaking, well, we, we don't tend to like lentivirus transduction uh, for gene knockout. It's absolutely fine in kind of uh, as the nuclear option sometimes. But one of the problems you have is that the Cas9 and the guide RNA, they're going to be in the cells all the time. So as you passage the cells generation after generation, you're more likely to start accumulating off-target effects and hitting the other parts of the genome. As I say, in some circumstances, it is a valid approach. You know, maybe a primary cell that's going to last for only a few generations, and that could be a useful option. Um, if you're only getting 20% transduction efficiency, that's pretty low, but many of the uh, plasmids and lentiviral vectors available have got enrichment markers. So you could use antibiotic selection like puramycin to remove the cells that are not being transduced, to enrich that population of, of uh, cells that are going to be edited. Uh, and just to answer the follow-up question you had in there about why avoid targeting exon 1, um, this is something that's come to light in the last few years, that if you hit exon 1, yes, it can lead to knockout sometimes, but in some circumstances, some genes will ignore the indel and just the RNA polymerase 2 essentially binds that part of the gene and just runs past it and finds an alternative ATG start site or alternative transcription start site downstream, and you end up with like an N-terminal truncation of the protein rather than a full gene knockout. Okay, great. Um, we've also got a question from one of our upcoming speakers, Pia, um, asking, uh, how about unintended on-target effects like creating hemizygous mutants? Did you look into that? Uh, we, we don't. I mean, um, on-target effects are actually probably um, a bigger problem in some ways. You know, you can get things like chromosomal translocations, you can get things like large deletions. So yeah, that can happen. Ultimately, what we're trying to do as a service is generate a knockout cell line. Um, and or a knockout mouse and typically what we do is define the alleles in those clonal lines or those or those clonal mice so if we did see a, a hemizygote effect that might be something that's more difficult to detect through our genus assays. but when we do the validation we may still pick up protein so we would then discount that particular clone or that particular mouse uh, mouse line so that's why the validation is really really important that follows on from this as well um there's too many things to look at in terms of the genotyping. I think we have to balance, you know, um, uh, genotyping and phenotyping to make it streamlined as possible to basically give the group a usable model. Okay, that's great. Um, thank you much. Um, uh, another question is, do you screen for off-target editing? Uh, no, we don't. And for several reasons. In mouse, um, well, first of all, we designed the guide RNAs to be as minimal chance of off-target as possible. Uh, if we did have a situation where we had concerns about an off-target, then yes, we absolutely would screen for it. But to date, it doesn't really happen. Generally speaking, in mouse, we would only really be concerned about off-targets that may occur in the same chromosome as the intended change, because they will co-segregate with the intended change. Other ones we could, if there was a problem, then we could segregate those through breeding and plan a genotype and strategy to accommodate that. Again, when we're talking about cell lines, we design those guide RNAs to be as efficient as possible. There is a bit of a, a kind of, <laughs> bit of an unspoken truth in the CRISPR field here that when you look at off-target predictions, you're comparing it to the reference genome. And the reality is the reference genome is not the genome that's in your cells of interest. So, um, you know, if you try to look for off-targets, 
then you're biasing where you're looking anyway. There could be other sites in the genome that you're not looking into. I think one of the key things is to do that phenotyping as well, make sure the proteomic changes are there. One great control that if you are really, really concerned about this would be to create the knockout cells using two different guide RNAs. So one pool and, and a second pool. Um, and the two different guide RNAs, you should, should see the same phenotype at the end. And those two different guide RNAs would have exactly the same array of off-target, uh, sorry, completely different array of off-target effects so if they behave the same way then you know you've properly controlled for your experiment for your gene knockout right thanks for that anthony um another question is from d do you use multiple sgrna co-transfection approach for cell line knockout project you absolutely can do uh we like to use one um, but you can use multiple and you can enhance your efficiencies. It becomes a bit messier to genotype at the end of it, uh, but you can do that. Um, obviously, we've talked about off-target effects and more guide RNAs in the same cell equals more chance of off-target effects. Whether or not that's a concern to you, that's something you have to decide. Um, it, it is more difficult to genotype, but I suppose if you lead by the phenotyping, by the proteomic, then you may more readily detect genes that are knocked out. But yeah, you can do that. Um, you, you're in more danger of other kind of effects like um, inversions and duplications when you use multiple guide RNAs. But yeah, we've done that in the past. We have done that and it's absolutely fine to do. Okay, great for that. Uh, another question from Rizal is, uh, for detection of knock-in cells, what is the most efficient method? We do like antibiotic selection. Um, it, it, it just enriches the population. I, I, I concede you. I concede that you're adding in an extra change into the cells. So you know the entire pot of CRISPR is we're making keeping the cells as as close to reality as possible. So I do concede that, but you do have to balance the practicalities of trying to make the cells versus you know make, being as perfect as possible. Quite often we make those selection markers removable, so we may flank them with LOXP sites, and you know then we can add Cree recombinasing later to get rid of them. So then we can bring it back to as close to the original state as possible. But it is all that numbers game, and it is all about making things as 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 uh, practical as possible. Uh, for point mutations, um, it's harder to integrate a selection marker. Uh, generally speaking, those web tools we described, like uh, ICE and Decoder, will quantify the level of editing. And based on that, we sometimes have a stop-go decision point where we say, do you know what? The editing efficiency simply is not high enough to warrant trying to make clonal cell lines. Um, we, that, it's been a very rare occurrence that, generally speaking, we are able to get uh, to the clonal uh, cell line stage. Okay, that's great. Um, we've had loads of questions. We're not going to be able to ask them all to Anthony today. So we will try and answer any of them uh, that we've missed offline and send them out afterwards. Uh, but for one last question, if a cell lung can't be transfected with plasmid DNA donor, what would you recommend? RMP. It, it, it will transfect with RMP. Um, you may have to optimize it. You may have to put work into it. There's lots of different delivery methods, such as lipofection methods, nucleofection. But generally speaking, uh, in our experience, every cell line uh, will uh, transfect with RMP. And the thing is, be, be, be clever about how you set the experiment up. Use a couple of guide RNAs, maybe ones that have been validated in the field or validated in your own lab that, that you know work pretty well. And then you know, you're controlling for that guide RNA that you know is functional. And you're just trying different delivery methods and quantifying those different delivery methods um, to, to come up with a solution. Nuclear option, as I say, is lentivirus. Most cells will transduce with lentivirus. Um, with the caveat that you may have that permanent expression of the guide RNA, permanent expression of the Cas9, not to mention a random integration of lentiviral DNA somewhere in the genome. It, that's making this perturbation as well that you're not uh, factor, that you're not controlling for. Um, but if plasmids don't go in, RMP or lentivirus may work. 
All right, great. Thanks for that, Anthony. Um, so that brings us to the end of your presentation and Q&A session. Thanks again for a very illuminating presentation and a fantastic discussion. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Listen In from Bite Size Bio. To view the full presentation of this webinar or to browse the Listen In series, please see the episode description for links. Finding the right mentor can make all the difference in your research journey. But what if you don't have one? Look no further than Mentors at Your Benchside, the podcast that offers curated advice from experienced researchers on lab skills, techniques, and career progression. With short, easy-to-access episodes, you can get the help you need to succeed in the lab. Visit bitesizebio.com forward slash podcasts or search for Mentors at Your Benchside in your podcast app to subscribe and get help and advice from seasoned scientists. 